Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and today I'm joined by Mr. Ron St. Pierre. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. So, uh, you want to get started on how you first uh, got into reptiles and uh, your career path up to this point? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I have the same story a lot of people have. I started out as a little kid growing up in Miami, spending my days in my yard catching you know, little anoles and skinks and stuff like that. And it just kind of snowballed. And uh, by the time I was 16 years old, I was a commercial collector uh, in Miami for non-native uh, species of lizards that were established there in the like late 70s, early 80s. And so I started supplying all the local reptile importers, dealers um, as a kid, and it just kept going. So right around the time I was like 18 or 19. So we're talking about like 80, 1988 or so. Um, I started breeding my first herps, which uh, was Burmese pythons and bearded dragons. And those were the first two things that I bred at that time. But my interests were always much far beyond that. I mean, I, at this point in my career, I can't even begin to name all the species that I've bred on some sort of a scale. Um, everything from tree frogs to tortoises to water turtles and and a lot of snakes. But primarily, my more or less specialty has been lizards. So it's been a lot of different lizard species. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I went. I was a commercial collector really up until 1992 and Hurricane Andrew um, basically decimated south florida and not and destroyed all the places that i used to to catch all these anole species um and that forced me really on the hard track to uh commercial herpetoculture which i still do today so that was kind of the pivot point for me that that prior to that i was i was a hobby breeder on the side but most of my my income and way of life came from you know catching the various anoles and supplying them to the United States. And actually a lot of that stuff got shipped overseas. So it went all around the world. So, and now I'm here today. <laughs> um, still do a lot of different stuff. Uh, you know, we're working on, um, we have a large scale project to, uh, to get um, the crown giant uh, species of anoles, um, you know, uh, done on a reliable scale which is something we're still in the process we've been i've been working on that for nine years um, but it's almost it's almost mature um this was the first year we actually started rolling a lot of them out to the public and that that consists of both um species uh, like anolis equestris podior and ludigalaris and a bunch of those, Rikerdi, and as well as morphs and mutations of the common equestris that's found in Florida. So, um, you know, we produce lace monitors and um, lots of bearded dragons, lots of blue tongue skinks, just a lot of a lot of different stuff. I'm probably forgetting. I, I'm sure. I'm. I know I'm forgetting a bunch of stuff, but that's just the main things right now. So, so. Uh what kind of got you into uh, breeding anole sequestrus? Um, well, I mean, like I said, that was that animal was the. I mean, that so when I was ten years old, my parents, because I had badgered them uh, to no end to get me a a pet iguana, but they took me to a pet store and they wouldn't let me get an iguana because iguanas got too big. They, my mom knew that they got six feet. So they ended up actually buying me a Cuban anole, anole sequestrus, and um, we didn't know at the time that they were actually found in our neighborhood. Um, so because we never saw them, and uh, so my my parents bought me one, and that was my first like real herp. Um, and then when I discovered a couple of years later that I could just go out in my neighborhood and ride my bike down the sidewalk and literally flick pluck these right off of all the trees that's what kind of uh turned into the commercial anole collecting then i found a book 
uh, written by Louis Porras in the 1960s about introduced species in Florida and it had all the locations of where all these things were. So I started going to these spots as I could and I would take the bus and, and Metro rail and all that just to get to some of these kind of out of the way locations. And I found that this, these species were still there and in abundance. So eventually I met some local reptile dealers and I started that. But so I've had a relationship with that lizard for a very long time, um, but I never really considered, you know, any sort of herpetocultural endeavor with them because they were, you know, they're harvested in large numbers every year in South Florida. They're very cheap. You can't really justify the, the, the cage space or, or the cost to produce. So, but in 2013, um, it's a kid down in, uh, in South Florida caught an albino and the, when they initially caught it, they sent me a photo. Um, and I, and I kind of laughed at it. I was like, Oh, that's a novelty, you know, it's cool and all, but I'm not interested in that. I passed on it. Um, but I also at the same time thought, wow, this is kind of neat, you know, never seen one of these. So I threw it up on Facebook and then I went off to do my work outside for the day with all the animals and, I came back inside, I left my phone inside. And when I came back inside, like two hours later, my phone was still, it was popping. And so I looked at it and I was like, huh? So I walked over and opened up my, my phone and there was a ton of messages from a lot of other professional breeders. Oh, what, you know, who has that? How much is it? And I was like, huh, people are actually care about this. So I thought, so then immediately I panicked and I was like, okay, well, I just alerted the world that this thing exists and there's probably like 20 people trying to track this down. So I called the kid back right away and I said, I'll take it. And I hopped in my car, ran to the bank, got him the money that he wanted and did a four hour drive South in about two and a half hours. Um, I don't think I've ever hauled ass that fast before, but um, <laughs> so, so I got down there, I met the kid. And uh, he was in his terrible neighborhood. It was like really bad place. And um, I pulled up and he's standing on the side in front of this convenience store. And he walks up to my truck with this dirty McDonald's bag that's been all kind of rolled up. And he hands me the bag. I mean, it must have looked like a drug deal to an outsider. And I handed this kid the money. And then I opened up the bag and it was this, it was a half dead baby albino anole in this bag. So. I was like, you know, whatever, I think I can get this turned around. So I left by halfway home. I stopped at a Burger King and got it some water out of the water fountain and it drank off my fingers. And then I was like, okay, well, that's a good sign. Cause it really looked, it was on death's door when I got it. Um, but I got it home and, it, and it rebounded really quickly. And within a year, um, I produced the first hats and from then, I decided, okay, well, this is, this is pretty interesting. I, this is actually kind of fun. So I started looking around for all the other crown giants that were available in the U S for different people. Um, and so I started picking them up here and there and then, um, and then I also contacted all the, the importers and dealers in Miami and said, Hey, anybody brings in a weird Cuban and all I'll, I'll buy it. I'll pay you, you know, X amount way over what the normal ones would sell for them, depending on how unusual. And that led to me getting uh, T negative albinos, T positive albinos, and then four or five other mutations that I'm in the process of proving out that are, some of them are pretty radical. So, um, and we've gotten a lot of interest off of that uh, from, you know, herpetoculturists across the United States and, and across the world. Unfortunately, it's difficult to export those. So I don't know if they'll ever make it across the pond or not, but um you know, and then and then um, I ended up picking up some Anolis litigalaris, and a big group of Anolis podior came up for sale. So I grabbed that, and that then it just really snowballed. And now I have a building full of them, and it's it continues to expand every year. So it's turned into it's turned into much more than I ever thought it would. Um, you know, nine years ago, I thought this was just going to be a little side project thing that I did and wouldn't be the primary focus. But now it's pretty much my primary focus um, of what and, and my 
girlfriend is Heather Moy, who's also a professional herpetoculturist. So her and I have a pretty large farm now, and um, she works on blue tongues and banana pectinana and things like that. And I primarily work on anoles and up until this point, large monitor lizards, uh, lace monitors in particular, but also Spencer's, Goanna and um, Mertens. But um, uh, it looks like they're probably going to end up being banned in the state. So those projects are probably uh, short-lived for me anyway. So yeah, so that's kind of how kind of I got a, here. Yeah. So kind of a deviation off of course of our conversation so far. Uh, you want to talk about this uh, new proposed Florida regulations? Yeah. I mean, I'm not one of those guys that's going to, you know, scream about any regulation. Uh, um, I think some regulations are probably necessary. There have been, there are, most of the mess here has been made by a very small number of people. It really is um, a couple of, you know, um, how can I put this? Um, I guess negligent actors that were importers and allowed large numbers of these or intentionally released large numbers of these species. That's definitely the case with the tegu. Um, it's certainly the case with the Burmese python. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of rumors and a lot of misinformation that runs around about it all, but the Burmese pretty much go back to a Vietnam shipment in I think 94, I believe Crutchfield talks about it in his book on giant snakes that came out recently. Um, and then the Tegus was a single bad actor who had imported a ton of adults from Argentina. He couldn't sell them. So because they were all beat up, they were missing tails and limbs and they were pretty, they were, they were like farmed animals that were probably raised in huge numbers and enclosures and Tegus are brutal. So rather than, you know, do anything reasonable with them. He just opened his enclosures and let them go. And they've turned into this mess that we have down here. The, uh, the iguanas go back at least to the 1950s in Miami. Nobody really knows how they got there, where they came from. But when I was a kid in the seventies, my mom and dad used to take me to the parks there and the parks were full of green iguanas. So by that time they were already well-established in Miami and South Florida. So that one's a bit of a mystery. Could have been the pet trade. It could have just as likely been um, the nurseries. There's even people that that have um, thought that that may have actually at one time been part of Iguana's range to some degree because they are found spread out throughout the Caribbean. But I mean, humans move stuff around. So maybe humans, you know, 100 years ago moved them around. But um, regardless, so... Um, we definitely kinda need like some those, regulation. Uh, yeah, kind of like those old stories of uh, boa constrictors and banana shipments, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And that still does occasionally happen. I know someone who who owns a grocery store in, I think, in New Jersey, and recently they got a shipment of bananas and there was an anole in there. So it does happen. I mean, even to this day, it's kind of it's kind of cool when that happens. But, um, but yeah. So I mean. You know, I'm kind of, I, I mean, the regulations have definitely been taken too far. These bans are, are not, um, you know, they're really not uh, well thought out um, because if you make all this stuff illegal and this, and it literally happens pretty much overnight, they give you a little bit of warning, but then they decide, okay, we're going to ban this. And then you have 90 days to meet an incredibly, um, uh, difficult series of um, uh, standards, uh, extremely expensive, cost prohibitive, and not in many cases, not even in the best interest of the animals. Um, you have to meet this and that's to just to be grandfathered in for an additional three years. And by that time you have to be completely, they all have to be completely gone. So it's not even really a grandfather clause. So um, that's very, and, I, and I'm quite sure a lot of people are just not getting permits now and they're keeping their animals and they're just doing it on the down low. The people that had those animals, which there was a ton of tegus in the state. There was a lot of Burmese pythons in the state, a lot of retics. So now people are just going underground with them and that's a problem. 
we had, I think they need to have some good, smart, you know, laws in place. I mean, it's, it's probably too easy to get a reticulated python or a water monitor or these big animals that, you know, most people can't honestly take care of. Um, so, you know, but there should be a pathway, I feel, for, you know, people that really are serious about it, that really want to that really want to do it. And, and if you have a realistic pathway to that and you have, you know, some regulation on that, that, you know, you can't just, you know, do what you want with them. I'm, I'm not against that. I think that's probably, that might actually be necessary, but so I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope here. It's, it's, I think, um, uh, you know, it just, Right now, in the past, FWC has always worked with the industry to make laws that were common sense, that, you know, they had good laws in place, uh, the spe uh, species of special concern. There was good regulation. They had no issues at all with it. It, it went on for years. I'm not exactly sure how long, but it was a successful um, regulation campaign. And then something changed, and, and I don't know exactly what it was, but all of a sudden they just had a totally different outlook and they just started banning things. Um, so, and they have thus far not exactly been receptive to um, comments from the public or from the industry. So I think, I, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know where it's going. I'm, it's made it hard to, uh, for us to uh, plan our future because we don't know really what's on the chopping block. Um, some of the things were surprising and then, but I, I recently got a hold of the list that they have that, uh, the state has that they're of the animals they're looking at and how they classify them as whether they're high risk, uh, medium risk or low risk. And some of them they have, then they have a super high risk designation as well. So, um, that seems to be relatively pragmatic how they're coming up with that there are things on there they, they've definitely found some things low risk they've done and so it's not like they're just you know stamping high risk on everything that could possibly live in this environment and banning it so that gives me some uh hope that you know there's some reasonable uh thought going on there but it's it's just a mess so so we've been tailoring our business and our livelihood towards things that I know that they would not find high risk. Things that have already been cleared, like like the giant anoles. They they were actually introduced in Florida by the University of Miami in the 1950s as an experiment to see if um, a, an introduced species could thrive in South Florida. And clearly, um, that was very successful. They've spread up both coasts. They're even up in the middle. They're all the way up to Central Florida, and all the way down to the end of the Keys. They they are they cover about probably 60% of the state now. They're also non-invasive. They inhabit only areas where humans have disturbed the habitat and there was nothing else any of there anyway. No native stuff survived the, you know, the urbanization. The anoles do really well in that environment. They adapt well to that, which is why, you know, they're the most studied. I believe they're the most studied organism on the planet as far as evolutionary um, biology. There's been just anoles are, are have been the subject of tons of the papers and books on that subject because of their ability, their adaptive ability, and how quickly they will evolve. So, I mean, but they're non-invasive so far. They they don't classify them as invasive. They're just introduced. So, you know, seems smart. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Miami University, great success with that one. Right. Uh, so you said that, at least in the past, not so certain about going forward, but in the past you've bred a lot of uh, large monitor lizards. Uh, you want to go in on your experience working with those species? Yeah, I mean, um, I started, I mean, so I am the guy for better or for worse. Um, that was a big tegu guy and cyclora guy in the in the 90s. I'm the one who brought the blue tegu and the albino blue tegu to the US pet trade. Um, so that was all my initial work. But that eventually, my work with tegus eventually led me to work with varanids. Um, 
And in the mid nineties, up until the early two thousands, I was one of the few uh, successful um, breeders of uh, Salvadori, the crocodile monitor, which I bred for a few years. Um, and then also I, I at that, and once I was successful with that, I started working with other ones. So um, starting from back then, I, I bred a bunch of different monitors, mostly the dwarf species, uh, the, the albigularis, the white throat from South Africa was one that I did a lot of. Um, recently, I've been really focused on the animal that I, when I got into this, you know, 40 years ago, I really was at the top of my one day I want to work with, and that's the lace monitor. And I finally got them three or four years ago. Um, and since that time, we produced a few good clutches. We have a, we have a good clutch in the incubator right now. Um, and, and hoping maybe we'll get another one before, uh, before too long. Um, and we also produce the Mertens, the Spencers or another Spencer's Gwen is another one we work on, but we haven't really, uh, we've just gotten infertile eggs each year. So there's something I'm, I'm not hitting on there. Um, but you know, with the legislation coming and a personal health issue, I had a hypertensive event or whatever they call it recently, which has forced me to radically change my lifestyle and diet. I just drove myself into the ground with stress and eating. I'm a stress eater. So the more stressed I got, the worst I ate. And I wound up in the hospital recently with a 202 over 110 blood pressure and uh, found out I was a diabetic. And so anyway, what that's done is I've, I got to take it easy for a few months now. And uh, Heather can't take care of all these giant monitors by herself, which we had about 40 of them here. So we, uh, we started a lot of more breeding loans. So we started sending them back to the owners and, um, and the other ones we recently sold a, bit, a large portion of that collection. So there was really two reasons for it. One is that I won't be able to do anything with them for a couple of months. And I didn't want them to, to suffer any lack of, you know, not being like perfect. And the other thing was, uh, you know, looking at this potential legislation, if they surprise me with it, which they are looking at, at Varanus as a block. So they're not even looking at individual species. They have it listed as Varanus SP. So of course, mm. if you're taking an entire genus like that and your criteria is if one of them is listed as, as, um, as very high threat, which they already have that in the Nile monitor because the Nile monitor is established here. Um, that's a, uh, that's gonna, you know, they're gonna ban them. So, did I lose you? Uh, no, you haven't lost me. Sorry okay. about that. No, it's okay. It's all good. Um, so yeah, man, that's uh, that's kind of where I'm at with that. We've, uh, I've just been working on them, um, but. I think that's probably going to go if for some reason in nine months when the monitors start to hatch again, if they haven't banned them and I feel like they're, then I'll probably will restart the lace monitors. But I think uh, the re I'm going to let the rest of them go. So, you know, anyway, the anole thing has grown to such a point um, and the, the blue tongue collection is getting larger by the year. So we really needed to kind of um, streamline a little bit and bite down hard on things that we're really folk, you know, that we really are working towards for the future. So it's probably uh, a good thing in some ways. So that's kind of, that's kind of my thought behind it, but yeah, the croc monitors were, were an amazing ride in the nineties that really uh, got me thinking about, you know, um, all the different things that could be done at the time, you know, there were a lot of species that people thought, oh, you know, they're too difficult to breed. You can't really do them. They, the requirements are too hard. But the truth is that almost everything is usually just some basic parameters and maybe in some cases an occasional odd thing. And for the croc monitors, it was basically the, the building of a fake termite mound, giving them a nesting area that simulated a termite nest, which I did by accident. 
honestly, I, it wasn't even intentional. I had a garbage can that I filled with, I cut the top out, I cut a hole in the top and filled it with uh, leaf litter because I couldn't get them to lay in the, in the typical, you know, burrow situation. So the females would hold the eggs too long and then just dump them all over the ground. And then obviously they wouldn't hatch. And then I had had a phone conversation with Frank Reedus and he was like, well, you know, they have these giant, um, these giant uh, staghorn plants that are in the trees where that monitor comes from. And they probably rip those apart and lay their eggs in those. So I was, that's what I was trying to mimic. And what they really do is they lay their eggs in termite mounds that are in trees. So I accidentally, without knowing, gave them that option and it changed the game for that. And the, fem the one female that I had would religiously lay her eggs in those. And it, I mean, nowadays everybody uses that method um, in a slightly different way using cocoa fiber, which is what we use for the lace monitors. They're also a termite nester. So you give them this fake termite mound, a hard shelled uh, single entry point, uh, you know, basically large tote that's completely overpacked with cocoa fiber. And um, they will start at the entrance at the, at the only place they can, and they will dig into it every time and lay their eggs perfectly. So it was pretty, uh, now it's a common practice, but in the nineties, that was, that was just a weird thing. And like I said, it was an accident, but once I realized that, then I was like, okay, well, there's all this other stuff that, so I started working on all these different lizards and, um, you know, I still do that. I mean, that's kind of what the whole project is. And, um, you know, it's just like one of those things, nobody cares about it. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I can, maybe this will actually be something if, if we push it hard enough. And it's, it's, I just got home from Daytona last weekend where there's the first time I actually took a large number of captive born and old, uh, giant and olds. And I, I was, I, I, my, my voice was, was shot by the end of Sunday. It was unbelievable how many people came to see that. So I was like feeling really good about that because I wasn't sure. I was like, man, if I build this, will they actually come? And yeah, they did. So it was pretty cool. So I'm kind of riding off that high still. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if, is there any other monster species you wish to work with someday? Um, honestly, I think at this point, I've pretty much done everything I wanted to do with, I mean, I would, obviously I would like to have parentes, but I think that's a pipe dream. Although I thought that I would never have Bell's face lace monitors either. And at one point, you know, I had nine of them here. So, um, it's, it's, I guess it's still within the realm of possibility. There are some in zoos in the United States and if they ever had a surplus, I could see them filtering out, but that would probably be the only one. Um, uh, other than that, I, I'm sort of more interested now in um, other species of anoles and some of the larger uh, gametes from Indonesia and and Southeast Asia, uh, you know, that are not really um, produced in captivity. Or now I'm starting to kind of look towards that. So um, I don't know. We might because my my girlfriend she, her thing she really has an interest in uh, the larger gametes. So. I was looking at that going, you know, maybe we can figure these out uh, and make it work, you know, in Florida in a kind of an indoor outdoor situation. So that's kind of where, that's kind of where I'm currently, my mind currently is, is at. So. So, uh, you, with, the uh, an old sequesters, you have albinos, you have uh, T positive, T negative, all those, uh, what are some other mutations that, you have proved out or you're in the process of proving out right now? Well, we're in the process of proving out, um, I think five different ones that should all prove one way or the other um, in 2023. So pretty soon, it's coming up pretty quick. Um, I have hats on the ground or, you know, if, if they're recessive, I, in most of these cases, I'm fairly confident that they're going to prove out these, these, these things are so radical that usually when you see mutations like this, um, they, they almost always prove out. Um, so we have these 
we have this one thing we call project X, which is this bizarre, um, it's about 80% canary yellow, but it has like green modeling infused in it. It was collected off a tree in, in Miami uh, last year. Um, and we got it. Uh, we picked it up from uh, a guy named Nick Lillis who, who bought it and then he sent it to us. Um, that animal has proven to be extremely prolific. And I, and the funny thing, I, I didn't actually have any normal males to breed this thing to, but after we set up here in, we're in Orlando in Kissimmee, after we set up here, we started finding wild, wild night owls trying to get into our enclosures. And there was, it, it was always males trying to get in and breed with the females. And this one particular one was extremely persistent. I would pull him off the cages, walk him out to one of the trees where he lives, puts him, put him back in the trees. He'd come right back. So finally I was like, oh, well I needed a male. And this one's definitely doesn't have any, it's not head for anything. So I, I was like, all right, you went in that cage. Here you go. So, so he's the father. So I have, um, I have heads on the ground from that. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly confident that'll prove out. Another one is this bizarre thing that um, a guy named a breeder named Ian Bissell, who's a chondro uh, tree boa guy that lives in Palm Beach. He was watering a tree in his backyard, and out of the ground in front of him came a hatchling, a, a hatchling anole that just started walking up the tree in front of him. And it was—I don't even know what it is. It's—it's. It's, like an albino but it's not an albino it's this pale yellow with it has a white stomach um, and initially when it was born it had a translucent stomach you could see its organs through its uh through its scales but now it's turned white um and uh it's it's a bizarre animal i mean I, i'm it, it sort of resembles a coral glow uh ball python, banana ball python. It's kind of like that. It may be a similar type mutation to what's found in that thing. But so that's that. And that I'm confident will prove out this year. Um, there's another one. This this kid keeps catching these ones with solid blue stomachs. Um, only the stomach is bright blue, like the entire vent all the way to the tip of the tail on the underside. And then the top of the animal, the dorsal, has this strange um yellow flecking all over it so it's pretty radical so i got two of those from this kid but he's caught a bunch of them so i'm sure that's a genetic mutation of some sort because you can't have so many you know replicas of it in the uh yeah. in this one little area um so that's about to prove out um t positive t negative the lilis animal the, the cell animal the blue belly i think that's it for now uh, we had a piebald one, but it, it didn't survive. Unfortunately, that was that would have been uh, pretty killer if that would have kept going. But um, so yeah, so I mean, just that alone, the combos and stuff should prove to be interesting over time. And then um, and then we've divided it off, and we we work really hard with Anolis Ludigalaris. We entered that project. Uh, that was a joint project with Philippe de Beaujolais. Um, he had some. He wasn't able to get them to breed in the in, indoor uh, area that he had them. So he sent them down to me. I had two females that I had picked up from Phil Tremper that were just sitting in my and doing nothing. So he sent me those and <laughs> they turned out, once I got them here and got them set up, they turned out to be the most prolific, one of the most prolific species. And now we have, between him and I, we each have around 20 adults. So we've got a nice block of 40 of them. And, uh, and this year I'm selling a lot of babies so they're extremely prolific so that animal should be established in some in some uh, capacity very soon and that's a very impressive anole it's different than all the rest rest of them so um and we're in the process of doing that with anolis rikardi as well which is much less prolific and more difficult but we, we we've got that figured out so um yeah so that's where we're at with that. Yeah. So uh, for people who've never kept Cuban uh, eye gnolls before, uh, what would you say they're like as a captive animal? Actually, very simple um, and kept indoors. They're very tame. Like if the, the babies that I've raised indoors 
totally different animal from the ones that I keep outside. The ones that I keep outdoors, they're more like what you would expect. Um, they're aggressive. You know, they don't want to, they're difficult to pick up. You know, they're, hang on a minute. My dog has decided to join us. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're, um, they're really, I don't know if you can hear that, but barely. Yeah. It's a, it's an Alapaha blue blood bulldog. And when it drinks the whole house knows. <laughs> um, all right. As long as it's not really coming over, cause it's super loud in here. Um, yeah, the, uh, come on. All right. There she goes. Okay. Sorry. Um, where was, what were we talking about? Uh, Cuban nine-nulls, captives, especially ones oh, yeah. indoors. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're super tame indoors. Um, and uh, their, their care is actually very straightforward, very simple. They're, if I had to, you know, correlate them to another species, I would say they're similar to crested geckos, but without, but with the, with a higher temperature and a UV requirement. So, you know, we use 18 by 18 by 36 inch enclosures with, um, you know, with a single live tree. We use a tree called a mass cane. Um, and then, um, you know, they, and then a cork log, and that's pretty much, you know, what, a, what, that's like the bare minimum for a pair. Obviously, if you get in larger spaces or you fill the enclosures with more, you know, uh, branches and stuff, it's better. But because, you know, we're doing this on a commercial scale, I have to keep it somewhat simple because they lay one egg every seven days and that egg can be very difficult to find. So I use a stripped down version, but if I was keeping them as pets, you know, I'd give them a much larger enclosure. They're perfectly suited for bioactive, large planted enclosures. Um, they eat a lot of fruit. They eat the rapashi crested gecko diets. Um, they eat a lot of grub type insects, hornworms, superworms, things like that. Crickets, very simple, very straightforward. Um, the only thing that I really do that's probably a little different um, is that I water them at night. So but as the lights go out, I heavily spray their all their enclosures and then I leave that so that they have all night to drink. Because most anoles drink dew and they do that, you know, between the hours of like 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. whenever the dew settles. Um, and almost all the knolls get their water intake that way when it's not raining. So this way it somewhat simulates both effects. They get a heavy spray which acts like a rain and then it lasts all night so they can take it in all night. So I found that trying to water them in the daytime actually was was not enough. So it's kind of like you know trying to fill a glass with a hole in it. If, when you're watering them during the day because as fast as you're putting the water in you're taking it right out with the you know with heat bulbs and and stuff like that so when you do it at night though they've got a good 10 12 hours to just take as much in their body gets to use it for a long period of time so it kind of maximizes it that's the only um husbandry tactic that i use which you know it's not revolutionary or anything but a lot of people don't they don't do it that way. They, they water it in the morning and then they'll water it, you know, at some point during the day. Well, that's how most people spray stuff. But I just couldn't, uh, I, f I felt like they were always teetering on dehydration when I was doing that. But once I changed to a nighttime water, that made a big difference. So cleared up all the husbandry issues that I was seeing with them previous. And it probably, uh, is, is it, it's probably extremely beneficial for anything that's, you know, a desert species that would get most of its water that way through dew um, and any of the tropical uh, animals that don't live directly, you know, near standing water of any kind. So. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned you do a lot of work with uh, blue tongue skinks. You want to go on that at all? Yeah. I mean, um, blue tongues are a thing that um, Heather and I, really got into when we got together she had had an interest in them and i've 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 bred them in the past multiple times um lots of species but um you know we we 
I got a breeding loan from a friend who had all of the available mutations of uh, Easterns and Northerns and Sumerian Jayas uh, that were also some potential mutations. So we have a, a very large group of them. We have, you know, the, the hypermelanistics, the albinos, the, the um, some new kind of uh, T-positive albino from Indonesia that, that actually hasn't been bred yet, but I, I'm expecting those to produce this year. Patternless animals that have that are basically zeros; they have no pattern at all. Um, and then we work with. Uh, there's more. There's more morphs too that I'm just not thinking of right now. I'm drawing a blank. But then we have pure Easterns. We have pure uh, Taliqua nigra latia. We have Ossipetalis, the Westerns. Um, I think that's it. We have Halimaharas, um, you know, and then peppered into all that is various morphs and combos and stuff like that. So we haven't really been selling any blue tongues yet. Um, that's kind of a thing that we're once we have enough, then we'll then we'll start rolling those out. But yeah, we're and we do those outdoors uh, year round in, in Florida in these large enclosures where we keep a pair to. I basically we basically treat them like lizards. A lot of people that keep blue tongues uh, don't treat them like lizards. They have this kind of weird. It's kind of like a cross between like a ball python and like a puppy. I, I haven't really, but that I just can't. It just doesn't work for me. Uh, so um, yeah, and and it's kind of funny. I we set them up in these large enclosures, and then I backfill them all with uh, leaf litter and. You know, they have underground hiding areas and we noticed that we would put food in there and they weren't really eating, and but they were still fat. And I was like, man, that's, that's weird. Why, you know, what's going on? And uh, so I didn't really question it much as long as they were healthy and solid. I, you know, it wasn't really a concern. And we figured it out when babies were born and we pulled the tubes out that they burrow into. And we were, you know, getting the babies out of tubes and all these giant roaches were coming out. And what happened was we've we've accidentally created an environment for the native Florida. Florida has a native burrowing roach that's fairly large. Well, when we created these environments, we created the perfect place for those and the blue tongues gorge themselves on them. So they get all this free food every day whenever they want. And these they're just living in the enclosures. So um, it's, it's been kind of funny, but uh yeah, we feed them a lot of insects and not only the ones they catch in their own enclosures, but, you know, we, we feed them hornworms and superworms and stuff like that. Um, I just, uh, I, I, I think that animal, we also give them a lot of fruit. That animal is just, I, I don't feel like a, a straight cat food diet is sufficient for them. They really are, you know, they're kind of an omnivore that bops around all day, you know, when they can and grabbing whatever they can find, whether that's fruit or grubs or, or, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure they eat everything, but so we give them a wide variety and it's worked really well. Our production rate has been very high um, compared to the feedback I get from other people that have attempted it, you know, on a, some kind of scale. I mean, there's a lot of them produced every year, but the production rate seems to be pretty low. And um, we we were I was surprised that it just ended up working this way. So I think it's probably not so much what we're doing. I think it has to do with the fact that they can eat whenever the hell they want, and uh, and they're getting these large you know wild roaches that are full of of nutrients and things. It's not like a you know a, a deficient commercially bred food source. So not going to mess with it as long as it's working. I'm I'm happy. So. Yeah. Yeah. You got the golden you got the golden goose there. Don't mess with it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So so yeah, blue tongues are, are are really fun. They're fun to work with. It's a it's a nice size animal. They they come in a wide variety of, you know, cool species and cool colors. And you know, there's a lot a lot of stuff you can do with them selectively. So um they're actually a lot of fun. I, I really like them. So, you know, it's just been something we work on. Yeah, uh, you also mentioned that uh, first one of the first reptiles you bred was a uh, bearded dragons. You uh, still work with that species at all? Yeah, I mean, 
so that's primarily what Heather did for a long time. She had, she owns fairy tale dragons, which is the company that we both operate under these days. And she was selectively breeding dragons for about 18 years. I bred bearded dragons going all the way back to 1988. Um, but they weren't some, they, so basically I have always done them on a commercial scale to be able to pay for all of the bizarre side projects that I've attempted to do that were for me, but you know, I mean, even producing very expensive varanids, um, by the time you, you, you know, you spend all the food, all the money that's required, you really don't make anything off of that. So it's kind of like, that's something people that breed monitors do it because they love it because there's just really no, there's really no, uh, financial gain to be had there for the most part. They're unreliable. It costs a lot of money, the whole thing. So, but bearded dragons are extremely reliable. And if you're trying to do this for a living, which is what I do, have always done, um, you really need that. You either need that or you need ball pythons or you need crested get. You need one of those pillar species that you do on, you produce a few thousand a year that, you know, can cover all your bills. And, you know, you, that. so then you can go off and, and do crazy stuff that no one cares about. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I'd always done them, but I never bothered with the morphs and anything else. And then, uh, but she's one of those people that have took them to a whole different level. I mean, they, they you know, she kind of built off of what Sandfire Dragon uh, Bob Mayhew did in the in the '90s, um, and just kept going with it. Now she, we on this property, we produce. They're still our our bread and butter. They still they pay the bills and they allow us to to work on these other things. And maybe over time that'll be somewhat um, replaced by the blue tongues and maybe even the anoles. I, I don't really know where that's going yet, but um, for now, yeah, we, we produce a lot of dragons here. Um, and, and I don't even know half of the morphs that she produces. I just walk by and go, Oh my God, that's amazing. And it, <laughs> I stay out of her way. I don't want, I don't interfere with that in any way. So, um, so yeah, it's uh we have a lot of bearded dragons here. I'm sitting in a house right now that the whole living room is completely full of them because it's baby season and you know, they're all over the place. Some in the building outside, some in the in the house, some in, and then she has these large outdoor we breed them outside here too. Um I, I figured out a long time ago how to make um how to set them up so that you could actually breed a the Australian dry species in Florida. Um, so, um, there's, there's two reasons why we can pull that off. One is that we, we live in a, in the part of Florida that's relatively dry. We have gopher tortoises naturally here. And when you have gopher tortoises, you have white sand, which means you have good drainage. Um, and I've always, all of my properties that I've lived on previous, I've always used that as a criteria. I, I won't move to any place that has a black soil because that means it floods or it has, it has a high rain rain amount so i always go to places in florida um, that are high and dry so that allows us to do them outside somewhat but you know there are things that we do to to deal with excessive amounts of rain and stuff like that so that's uh that's that <laughs> so uh do you have any pl planned projects outside of your uh anolis and and all your other projects we've gone before. Do you have any other projects going forward you want to start up or looking to start up? Yeah, I mean, um, we're moving to a new system. That's uh, uh, so we have a we have a two thousand square foot building on the property that's largely unused so far. We've only been here for a couple of years, um, and it's currently half storage, half indoor outdoor. Uh, set up for the for the knolls, but we're gonna we're gonna gut that building and go with the the entirety. We're gonna outfit it completely in these um, all custom all glass enclosures to do large scale oddball lizards indoors, but ones that'll fit a certain set of parameters that we have. They have to be able to take the heat. Um, they have to be able to take some of the cold um, things like that. So we're looking at a lot of different stuff that can fit in that system. Um, and I could see myself eventually maybe messing around with things like Amazon tree boas, um, 
we're looking at frill dragons, some of the other uh, Indonesian, um, you know, agamids, the larger agamids, the ones that can that can withstand, you know, low 90s. So anything that's really cool, uh, cool weather, I need to stay away from just because it's just so hot. But but I'm also though, I, and as I say that, I we also picked up a swamp cooler recently and. I really like how you can drop the temperatures in an open building with by a couple of degrees with one of those. So I was looking at that going, well, if we ran two of them on here, you know, one on each side of the building, maybe we could drop the temperatures enough that we could, you know, keep it at 85 all the time. And that would open up a, that would open up some other, some other things. So, yeah, I mean, I foresee a diverse, a diverse collection of primarily arboreal type things. Um, I just like things that live in trees. She she loves things that live in trees. So, you know, and and I also like doing things that are not you know done by everybody else. So that's so we're looking at a bunch of stuff right now. There there I could I could see in the in the near future, um, you know, besides adding a bunch more knolls that I'm actively trying to track down that I don't have, um, I, I could see some some side things going with maybe uh another one that i'm trying to get is uh, polychrist peruvianus the the giant uh peruvian polychrist lizard which is just an amazing animal and i i've been seeing them in the states more and more recently so i was like okay when people start hatching those that's something i really want and so yeah those those kind of kind of strange things are on the top of the list, you know, stuff that I haven't worked with before, stuff that we think is interesting, stuff that I feel is not represented well in the, in the hobby currently. And, um, you know, I, I think our focus is more and more on the hardcore sector of the, you know, the serious keeper sec sector of the, of the hobby and less on the, you know, the, the starting hobbyist kind of thing. We do produce stuff, obviously bearded dragons and blue tongue skinks. That's primarily who buys those. But, um, you know, I personally am very interested in, in things that are, um, different and difficult and, you know, so challenging because otherwise I, I, that's the thing is I get bored. And then once I, once I've mastered something, I have a bad habit of saying, okay, I've done this, you know, I proved that I could do it. And I'm now going to move on to the next thing. That's, that's not very conducive though to running a business. So, so I've had to curtail some of that. Um, Cause as soon as I get things worked out where I have the system down and it's starting to crank out, then I'm like, okay, on to the next thing. And the whole process starts over again. So that's what this, yeah. I'm trying to mitigate that. <laughs> yeah, I know what that feels like. Um, so you mentioned one, one of your first species of bread was a uh, Burmese pythons, and also you want to maybe get into Amazon tree boas. So, do you have any current snake projects you're working on? Not at the moment. Um, I'm I'm looking. So, oddly enough, blood pythons are something that I've always. So, blood pythons and Sanzinia are two things that uh, I could definitely. I mean, I I think probably within the next couple of years, we'll definitely have. Uh, both of those going at some degree, particularly Sanzinia. I, I've had Sanzinia off and on um, over the years. And when I was growing up, I used to work, when I was a kid, I used to work for this um, guy named Ed Chapman who owned Florida Reptile Importers. And I used to go to his shop all the time. Well, he had a serious interest in Sanzinia and he had a ton of giant green, you know, when I say giant, I just mean adult green Sanzinia. Um, and I used to spend hours just staring at those. And we had all these glass enclosures and and they're like a, I'm a huge fan of the pit vipers, particularly the arboreal vipers, um, but also things yeah. like gaboons and rhinos. But because of the laws here and the venomous thing, I just never, I, I've kept gaboons and stuff when I was a kid, but when I got older, I, and my kid was born and my ex-wife at the time wasn't having anything with venomous, so. I haven't kept them since then, but Sanzinia kind of give you that viper. You get that viper look out of them without, yeah. the, without the, you know, the venom side. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so every time I look it's at those, 
guess it's kind of like a arboreal viper boa. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, those and Amazon Basin emeralds are are two of the things that the probably the last two things that are very high on my list. They were right underneath uh, lace monitors, and so I mean, eventually I will get around to getting those. Actually, once this um, tank system is done and the anoles are really rocking, I could see dedicating an entire row in that building to to tree boas. That way I can get my snake fix out of the way. That's sort of the reason why we're building the system. It has in baked in mind these other things. So it'll be easy to just go from, you know, from point A to point B because the system's already in place. So that's kind of what, uh, what we're, that's actually my main focus for the next year is to get this finished. So be nice if I can get it finished by the, by winter, but I'm not going to hold my breath because these things always take way longer than you expect. But um, yeah, so I figured if I'm getting rid of my, if I have to get rid of my monitors because the state's, you know, going to ban them or whatever, then I'm going to get the other things that are on that list that I've never gotten that I have access to now. Yeah. And besides, there's a solid, there's a guy with solid black Amazon Basin Emerald Tree Boas that are just freaking amazing. Yep. That, that does sound kind of otherworldly. Dude, they are, they are. <laughs> the first time I saw him, I was like, oh my God, I need that. And and I think he's actually in the process of, of producing those. And so when those come out, I imagine the price tag is going to be unbelievable. <laughs> but, uh, I'll just, I'll get a call. I have an investor that I can call and say, hey, dude, this is available. You know, we can do this. So I'll get them. But um, yeah, man, I I was sent a photo of them initially when they, when they were down in South America. And I was like, oh, my God. But the price was just way out of my reach. And then I saw them on people in the U.S. had them. So I was like, oh, well, look at that. It's like a couple years later. So. Yeah, they're amazing. A black emerald tree bow is just crazy. I mean, it was on basin too. Yeah, yeah, it's a basin. So, I mean, just the regular basins are amazing. I mean, I, I'm kind of torn between which one is cooler, but they're, but I mean, why not have both? <laughs> so, yeah, very high on my, very high on my priority list. Probably that's those two are the two top things. If I, if I uh, had to, had to push for something, it would be Sanzania. Um, and, and Amazon basins. Yeah, not gonna lie. If someone sent me a picture of a solid black tree boa. I would have probably thought they just photoshopped it. But right. Yep. And that's actually what I did think the first time I saw it. I was like, they were like, no. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's an importer, and he's he's like, no, it's been down. It's been down there for a couple of years. They want, I think they wanted twenty five or thirty thousand for it in in the uh, you know in where it was. So. I don't know what those those would sell for in the United States if they were produced. Yeah. Amazon Basins, man, they some of those guys get just insane money for the really, you know, the high white ones and stuff like that. And they all yeah. they, the prices have never gone down. They've always been very stable. I mean, it's an iconic animal that, you know, if you're a hardcore herper, more than likely those are on your list of, you know, I hope to work with one day kind of thing. They've certainly yeah. been on mine for a very long time. So, yeah. Uh, so where can people uh, find your uh, business online at? Um, I mean, we have a website. It's uh, fairytaledragons.com. It's fairytale with a T A I L. And then um, also on Facebook, uh, her, the, the, that's the business site is fairytale dragons that's on Facebook, Instagram, my personal, I have a personal uh, page where you can follow me at Ron St. Pierre uh, on Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, we don't really have much of a commercial footprint. Honestly, we do a couple big shows a year. We have a, an, I personally have a 40 year client list, you know, people that just sit bought buy from me and, Hers is uh, almost 20 years deep now. So a lot of stuff we don't ever have to advertise. We, we are in Morph Market too now, though. We do have a Morph Market thing. So I think it's also, it's Fairytale Dragons on Morph Market. So we have a little bit, you know, 
some, she, I think she tries to list every two weeks on there um, with any surplus, but yeah, it's pretty much one of these things where you just send me a message. Hey, I'm looking for this. And if we produce it, then we drop people a message and no, but we have it. So, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I absolutely had a fun time talking to you. So, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for having me, dude. And, and it was, it was good to chat with you. So. All right. All right. Thank you. All right, bud. Have a good night.